New Moon greetings, local citizens. It's Florence Adu, your host for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. This week and next, my guest is Chike Frankie Edozian. He is an author and a professor and the director of the NYU Accra program. So we caught up and we discussed in part one his work in Africa and in Accra and what inspired him to become an author and journalist. And then in part two, we get deep into his memoir, which is The Lives of Great Men. And you'll learn a lot more about how he views storytelling as, of course, a way to change minds and transform the ways that people interact with each other. A side note is that Frankie is part of a festival, an online virtual festival, which is Afro-Lit Sans Frontières. It was a response by a group of African authors to the lockdown and pandemic here in Africa. So this is the fifth edition, fifth season of it. It started back in March. And another of my guests, Leia Edenle, he participated in the first edition. There's so many wonderful authors that are part of each of them. So please do check out the show notes and see what we're talking about with Afrolit Sans Frontières. It starts on the 27th of July through the 3rd of August. Again, show notes have a link to where you can view it. It's Afrolit Sans Frontières on Instagram and on Facebook. And you can also get just more information just by searching the web and checking out Frankie's links. Hi there, local citizens. It's Florence Adu, your host for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. Today we are again in Accra, Ghana. We're enjoying the sweeping winds of the raining season. It's cool and it's kind of nice, actually. I've never experienced raining season in Ghana. So this is a very new experience for me being here because We are still in border closing territory, but I'm very happy to be border closed and have the opportunity to speak with my guest for today. He is an award-winning Nigerian-American journalist and writer. He's currently based in Accra, and he's the director of NYU's Accra program. In 2007, he published his memoir, The Lives of Great Men, which is a Lambda Literary Award winner, Chike Frankie Edozian. Welcome to Glocal Citizens. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for having me. And I am uh, very thrilled to be here. Happy to also be in Accra in this weird time in the world. It's a good place to be. So thank you for having me. Indeed. So let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit more about you, what inspires you, and a, lo- a little bit more about your craft. Um, I'm a journalist, uh, professor, teacher, um, storyteller. I think everything I do um, is, is in service of something. So very early on in my journalism career, I realized that I didn't just want to write um, stories that uh, were just interesting to me. I wanted to write things that actually made a difference in people's lives. And so I've always thought of myself as, as, um, as a journalist and a journalist in service of the greater good. 
I am. I'm currently, you know, based here in Accra, running New York University's uh, summer New York University's year-round program. We have a study away program. We used to call it study abroad. We now call it study away because sort of open to people from everywhere. And I have been coming to Ghana for probably about twelve years professionally, teaching here every summer. And prior to that, I had a career uh, prior to joining NYU in 2008. I had a career in journalism. Um, my field, as you know, is creative nonfiction. So I've contributed to a couple of books. And yeah. <laughs> and I'm just, you know, jolly. <laughs> if you've read his book, which I have, you know that that is the summary of his writing career because Frankie has written quite a bit and quite quite broadly. He's covered some of the iconic cases, particularly for those of us who lived in, in New York. Some of the iconic cases worked for organizations that are, you know, everyday household newspapers, news publications. And so, okay, you've done that high level 10,000 foot. We have tried. Yeah. <laughs> we have tried to, to make a difference in every outlet that I could possibly write. In. I mean, part of the thing about journalism or just maybe any kind of writing in general is that if you don't really have any place to put it, is a valid, you know, can you make a difference if people can access it, if people mm-hmm. can, can't read it? And so I've always tried to do things that, you know, could have wide readership or if not wide readership, and it has impactful targeted readership. And it's very, very difficult to do these days with a plethora of outlets out there of different standards. But I think that ultimately good journalism makes a difference in people's lives. And literature in general, actually, you know, now that I'm not practicing daily journalism and I'm just focused on creating more long form stuff that can stand the test of times, I've always had this appreciation for literature, but I believe that just as journalism, daily journalism makes a difference in people's lives, you know, good, strong canon literature makes a a huge difference in in people's lives. And these days, outside of my work teaching journalism and being an administrator in a university program, a lot of my work is is trying to be in service of literature and how books can help people live better lives and how people can have access to those kinds of things. Right. So, so many things pop in my head as I say that, because we are here in Africa and you know, I think there was a time when there were a lot of books. You know, you could go many places and, you know, particularly, I guess, post in the post-colonial ages and, you know, probably through the 80s until, you know, the lean times came with coups and, and unrest. There were a lot of books around, but increasingly, and now with the digital age, there are fewer books. And so the practice of reading has really and truly changed. So tell us a lot more about, a little bit more about, because I'm assuming as a writer, you loved books. So tell us more about the books that inspired you to become a writer, number one, and then also how you, what, where you see the book as a tangible piece of, I guess, life form, because they're always living, how that now kind of interacts with the new African. You know, I, I always say that from personally, believe that books saved my life because there's always been a, a moment when I, if I've ever been in any kind of crisis where I, I turn to a text, piece of literature. Um, growing up, I learned how to read from newspapers, not one mm-hmm. particular book. But before I went to, into my class, I already knew my ABCs because 
my parents were civil servants and my father would bring newspapers home every day. So I played with them and I, I learned my ABCs from newspapers. Unfortunately, over, I think, uh, maybe the last 20 or 30 years for many of us who are here in West Africa, but I suspect something similar perhaps has happened in East Africa and Southern Africa as well, but I'm not sure. Nigeria and Ghana is where I know the most, but you know, we have had a situation where most people tend to read, or a lot of people, not most, tend to read because they need to pass an exam. Mm -hmm. uh, they read for fate reasons, and mm -hmm. it almost became a situation where actually investing and buying books for literature's sake became something that was rare. And it's not as if, you know, there is a dearth of books or there is a dearth of writers. There are people writing and have been for the last 20, 30 years. So there's not a, a dearth of an output, but there is a dearth of purchasing. There is a dearth of libraries. There is a dearth of bookstores being able to function in the way that they can. Just take living in Accra where I am. I've been to, I think, one really good bookstore here, and there's a bookstore not far from where I live, and it's wonderful. It's just filled with religious texts. Now, if you're not looking for a Christian Bible or something along those lines, you, you don't have that bookstore that is there giving you access to all the other material that people are producing. There is, you know, uh, and brick and mortar stores are, are quite expensive. So it's wonderful for me to sit here in Ghana and see that there's something called bookstore.nook that actually delivers bookstores to people at home, books that you can order online. But again, how many people have access to that phone to be able to order a book online and have it sent to them? How many people have access to that computer? So I think that we are in a situation where the forces of our governments and the emphasis they've put on things and the fact that if you are in an economically deprived community, um, it, it now seems as if it's a luxury to purchase a really good piece of literature, contemporary, contemporary book, a novel, you know, a memoir that now seems to be a luxury when you can spend your money on other things and read your Bible or your Quran if you have one anyway. Right. So I, I have been influenced by many, many books in, in my life, but I really want to focus on the now and what people are doing now. And I think that I hate to use terms like the golden age, but I do think that there is a moment that we're having now in African literature where, you know, from Kenya to Namibia, from South Africa to Ghana, to Ivory Coast, to Angola, Africans of today are producing amazing, amazing works of fiction and nonfiction, if only the rest of us on the continent had access to them. How wonderful would it be? And that is really a bit difficult to swallow because as I travel around the continent and as I meet other people who are doing very interesting things, the one thing that pops up in my head is I'm lucky enough to be here in South Africa at maybe a book festival and I can buy all these books to take home, but can people in Accra get them? Can people in Lagos get these books? There's mm -hmm. just one or two or three publishers, you know, that able to make the investment in buying the rights and having them for sale. And even when they do that, are people going to come and, and purchase the book? I mean, there are people who would show up and buy the, the next installment of Harry Potter or the next installment of whatever, but they don't have access or even the ability to enjoy a, a good piece of uh, fiction from Angola or from Kenya or even from Ghana here. I mean... Here we are sitting in Accra and there's a couple of writers I know. And when I talk to a couple of people, you know, I say, okay, you have a book club. Have you, um, have you been able to read Aisha Harun Atta's book? 
oh no, we know about her, but you know, that's not one of the ones. Okay, fine. Have you checked out BCI Japan's book? Oh no, we're looking at this book from London. And it is heartbreaking because the work is exquisite. The work is delightful. The work is delicious. Even when the work is a bit complicated, like, you know, Yagas' Homegoing or Thais Alas's Ghana Must Go, you know, it's like reading is, it cannot always be like drinking your favorite glass of beer. Sometimes you do have to work at it to get to um, yes. a point where you can appreciate all that has been done in it. And right. you know, I was with a person who runs a small book club and I was like, okay, just off the top of my head, you know, the prophet of Zongo street, home going. Yeah. I guess he's like, we have not read any of those books. And I was like, okay, well tell me which Ghanaian author have you read? Have you read? I do. Oh no, that's too classic for, okay, well, what have you actually read? And part of it is the inability for us to just continue to look to our own selves and look to our own creativity and look to our own genius and Mm -hmm. say, even if I don't understand this, let me put this out there. You know, I'm not a business person, so I don't understand how somebody who is running an Accra-based book business, right, where you have book clubs and you're selling books and you're not even looking at, let's just even forget before we go next door to Nigeria, you're not even looking at your own writers that you have here who are doing contemporary stuff. I know that these are not classics, but these these are books that perhaps will be classics for the next generation. I'm firmly in the camp of we really need to make a re- investment and recommitment in what we read and what we allow to permeate into our heads and our senses. And we don't need the governments to do that for us. We don't need teachers. If they're not teaching African literature, that's fine. You know, as you said, the world is smaller. There's the internet. There are avenues to find African writers who are developing an amazing canon at the moment that you can just try and find those books and get those books, whether it's on Kindle or it's an ebook whatever and we can we have a lot to learn from each other and we have a lot to offer each other on our continent even before we start talking about you know what book won the the man booker in europe or what book won the pulitzer in america we have so much among ourselves and i think that that is sort of like where i really want to focus my energy on is us telling our own stories and us finding our own stories i'm primarily a non-fiction writer but i have a great appreciation for fiction and I also have mm-hmm. a greater appreciation for creative nonfiction. The stuff that we're seeing in our books, I think, is it's really, really wonderful. And some of this work has have been able to do the job that journalism is not always able to do. Right. right. Oftentimes when people write about us, I don't care whether we're in Accra, Kumasi, Tamale, Lagos, Port Harcourt, Luanda, Windhoek, Nairobi, wherever we are, and foreigners come and they write about us, they don't often portray us with all the complexity and the fullness of our beings. There is the story that's of the moment that they get, and there is what will either sell papers or generate clicks, but it's you don't have that full-bodied complexity because, you know, we're fabulous, but we're not all fabulous. We have problems, and no one is one thing or the other. There's always all of right. these layers, all of these right. deep layers, all of these shades of gray in our worlds. And where daily journalism has not been able to capture that, our literature has in contemporary times. I'm not talking about the literature of the 70s where we had the giants of the Achebes. I'm talking about right now, some of the mm-hmm. books that have come out in the last 10 years have been able to capture us in all our facets. And that is a thing that I think we have to find ways to 
engage each other more with the canon that's being produced now. And I'm very happy to be looked at as an African writer who is managed to have been published in this era. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you say, you said, you know, it's not the government or these things, I have to kind of disagree because the culture of reading is from institutions and educational institutions. So the way, the way that, that you said, there's, there's no libraries, there's, there's no this. So, so to some, some extent, extent we have, have to have, have policies that facilitate the private sector to come in and, and incentivize individuals to bring those books. My mother is like a book lover and she's always collecting books and has sent I don't boxes and boxes. I have a whole storage full of books, right? All kinds of books. And so now it's on me to figure out, okay, well, how do I distribute them? How does it make sense? And, and so I think we have a lot of people doing that, but aside from it being part of an institution and, you know, we have great works because we have it's part of the curriculum. So without the cooperation of the academy on not only on the primary, the secondary, and on the tertiary and on the, you know, graduate level, I think our books will not see the, the sign of side of day as much as, you know, particularly because we don't have the commercial side of having the bookstores and having that culture ingrained. And then that goes directly to now a Kindle book or an ebook or even an audio book, right? So I wonder how you and, you know, higher education feel about how you influence, because reading starts, you started reading as a child. That was your first, your first exposure was reading newsprint. I don't know too many families that even buy a, a newsprint anymore. So, and, well, and then I also, <laughs> right, exactly. So, so how do, so the question is, how do we now, I, I hear you and saying, you know, everyone, we have a place, but what do you think are some tangible solutions for, you know, infusing communities, particularly disadvantaged communities with the word in a way that feeds their hunger for information? I'm very, very skeptical of governments because I think that, you know, governments have, how do I say this politely? <laughs> they've fouled they've it up, always, basically. <laughs> they've not always given us the best that they could. Yeah. You know? And I am a guest in Ghana, so I'm not going to criticize the government here because I'm living here now under a work permit that I like to keep. However, that being said, I... um. I think that at some point, you know, and this is not just about literature and about books, I think that at some point, those of us who are in, in, in this generation who are living right now, we cannot look to our governments for solutions on a lot of things, mm. you know, we just can't. I mean, I think it's, it's okay if the government is pro- providing free education, but we can't look to them to give us the culture of reading. We have to find a different way. Mm -hmm. I mean, if your government is not able to just, you know, provide you with with constant electricity or pipeline water, I mean, as we see in many parts of of our continent, not just in West Africa, I mean, there are major issues where our governments have not been able to fully grasp how to deliver those comfortably, you know. So Mm -hmm. for me to now expect them to, like, have this massive investment in, in the arts and in literature, I think that you know, I would be dreaming a little bit. But I do think that, you know, we can hold private sector people who are successful and say to them, you know, instead of giving us rice or, or cement or whatever it is at, you know, Christmas and New Year Festival, maybe perhaps you could help us with reading programs. Mm-hmm. You could help us with stocking dictionaries and stocking books. I mean, books are not easy to have. And some in some communities, they're practically expensive. But I just think that, 
they have to invest in not just the production of knowledge, but in the keeping of that knowledge. And right now, it is contemporary. These contemporary writers that are chronicling our history for us in a way that it's not somebody else telling us who we are. It is we who are telling our own stories on a very vast, vast um, array. And it's not just in one place. If you look at the amount of wonderful literary online magazines that are coming out, why are these magazines, you know, in all parts of our continent coming out and doing great work? It's because we're telling our own stories and we're not waiting for someone to give us permission to do so. You know, while that is amazing, if people don't have enough access to the internet to read these pieces, it becomes difficult. So I Mm -hmm. think that while all of us should demand better of our governments, but we should also demand better of everyone who, you know, takes our time, whether it's your house of worship or it's your, it's the place where you go and you, you, you know, you, you have your country club or you have your, whatever it is that should be like, you know, I'm giving you of myself and my money what are you going to do for me? And what I need you to do for me is to invest in books, knowledge. I don't believe that knowledge should be a thing that is inaccessible to people. People should, yeah. have, should have access to knowledge and it becomes difficult when they don't. Right, right. Of course, of course. So we're moving into my why the where question. Yes. And so we generally know that you're here as the director of NYU's Africa uh, Accra program. But reading your memoir, I want to understand a little bit more about how you came to be living, working and playing where you're living. You mean here in Ghana? Or yes. in my whole life? Where you're lo- yeah, well, you're local here. So yes. Well, I like to think that I am because sometimes when I fly in, people say welcome home. So that, that feels nice. <laughs> uh, I, I, like I said, I started coming to Ghana regularly about 12 years ago now. And that was basically because I wanted to, part of my work when I left daily journalism, the, the next phase of what I wanted to do was to help people who were interested in international journalism think about us and not just parachuting here, but think about West Africa as a viable place to aspire to do international journalism. Mm. And so one of the things that I did at NYU Journalism Department is to help in developing this international reporting program where we brought people who are journalists in training, and many of them will move on to be future correspondents all over the world, to say, you know, come to Ghana and be here for an entire summer where you're not here as just someone who's parachuting in for a story and leaving. But what we try to do is to simulate the role of a resident correspondent. So I would come with these classes of students and would be like, well, we're not guests here, we're not tourists, we're living here. And if we are, what kind of stories can we produce? What kinds of stories can we produce? What kinds of work can we do that would be different from what is expected of stories coming out of Ghana. And I used to say, it's, yeah, it's easy. We can do the, if it bleeds, it leads story, but it's not really worth our time because everybody else is doing some sort of horror story from the region. Let's see what else there is. And, you know, to my great, great pleasure, a lot of the students would come up with wonderful stories from this country. And I said, let's try to see what it's like 
with a different mindset of just, I'm looking for a good story and how does this work? And one of the things that did was that people were taking ownership of being here because they had a life here. They had friends, mm-hmm. they went to church on Sunday, they had a whole social life. So it then became like, okay, this is our town and you know we want to tell interesting stories about our town rather than just you know what was spoon-fed to them. So that began my regular um, journeys and visits to Ghana. And after some time, I started doing a different program where I brought people who were here looking to do just scholarly research, not necessarily journalism majors, but science majors, all sorts of majors. And I would come with them and we would do a class usually in March and we'll be here and we'll just say, you know, because I always believe that there's a lot to research in West Africa if you look hard enough and Ghana has a lot going on. And so some of them would come and do projects here and then I'd come back over the summers and spend time with the journalism students you know, traveling around the country because part of the program was pure immersion. So yes, we were based in Accra, but I think we would get to see a lot of it. You know, we'd go all the way to Paga, Bolgatanga, you know, just see the country mm-hmm. as much as we can over our summer. And then the students got a sense of being able to write from a place of authority because they mm. hadn't been in Ghana for like two days before they wrote a story about some mess. You know, they'd been here, they'd seen things, they'd interacted with people. And as I was doing that, I also, you know, I, I, you know, as much as I love to train journalists, I, I have, you know, my own interest and my own research things. So I also, while that was going on, was also going to other parts of the continent. I spent a lot of time in Southern Africa, spent a lot of time back home in Nigeria as well. And I managed to see a lot of our, of our wonderful continent. And that, I think, is sort of like a, a running theme in my writing over the last bunch of years, really, it's been writing about what's happening on our beautiful continent. So I guess it's basically work that parlayed into a little bit of play that has you calling Accra home now. Yes. Well, I, you know, recently, I, in last year, I think it was announced that I would be NYU's uh, director of the entire campus here. Uh, while prior, I would come for, like I said, I'd come for the summer or I'd come for my research stints. But outside of what I was doing, there is a whole team here and a whole operation here that trains students all year round. There's students that come in the fall semester, they come in the spring semester. I would come in the summer with students. There's what we call intercession, which is like spring break and January break. So there's a whole operation here of exposing Ghana and the region, the West African region, to our students for research and study and all sorts of opportunities as part of broadening their education. And I'm obviously very interested in in helping people to see us as a place of scholarly enterprise. And so when I was appointed to come and be the director here, I was very, very pleased and looked forward to doing so many things here. And very soon after I got here, COVID happened. So it's been kind of weird. I right. took over as a director in January, but by March I was heavily involved in trying to get our students back to the United States or the countries where they came from because oh, okay. the, because the borders were going to be closed over here. Right. And fortunately for us, we're able to get all our students, all 30-something of them back home safely to their parents, but then to continue their education with our professors online. So it's been a bit of a manic couple of months as a newly minted Accra resident where everything's just gone haywire. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah, this whole, I mean, I work part of my life in education, primary education for the most part. 
then I'm also an alum of NYU as oh, well. Yeah. So Which school did you yeah, go to? So I went to Wagner. Oh, yeah. So you got violet in your veins. I do. I do. So whenever I hear NYU, and particularly I was very happy when the program started here. And, you know, so it's always close to my heart to be close to one of my alma maters. <laughs> I haven't been to the campus, though. I've met people who work there. I know Krista as well. And so... Well, what, what yeah, happened is that when things get a little bit easier for everybody, which I hope will be soon, because I think everyone sort of like had it up to here with the interruption by COVID in our lives. But when things are a bit settled, you know, we would love to have you come visit our campus. We are small but mighty. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Global Citizens. We're back next week with part two of our discussion with Frankie. Please, 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 please subscribe. Check out the podcast at www.globalcitizenspod.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Listen, subscribe, comment, recommend guests. We love to hear from you. So until next time, bye for now.